unhappy patients. We've all dealt with them, we've all been frustrated by them, and we've all learned valuable lessons from managing these patients. I'm Ben Lahood from the Queen Elizabeth Hospital and Ashford Advanced Eye Care, Adelaide, Australia. And my task for today is to moderate a lively discussion with a few of my colleagues on this very topic. Welcome to a special episode of CRST, the podcast. Joining me today are Jorge Alio from Visum Institutio Ophthalmologico de Alicante in Spain, Glenn Karp from the London Vision Clinic, Radhika Rampart from Queen Victoria Hospital East Grinstead in the UK. Before we get started discussing best practices in patient counselling, let's go around the table and share how we'd manage a few cases of patients who are unhappy after cataract and refractive surgery. My feeling with nearly all disappointing outcomes is that there's just a simple mismatch between expectations and outcome. It is very rare these days to have a true refractive surprise, but it does happen. So my first case I would like to discuss is a patient who came to see me very unhappy with monovision they'd been given elsewhere. Elsewhere, of course, I didn't do it, of course. They were 51 years old. Previously, they were a moderately high myope. They underwent LASIK with one eye set for distance and the other set for minus two myopia. Now, it's a reasonable thing to do. Um, the patient, though, was really missing their intermediate vision for the computer and lots of daily tasks. I'd be really interested to know how you'd manage this patient. Uh, she doesn't know how lucky she is to have three world experts comment on her case. I'm going to pretend that this was all my thoughts. But Radhika, can I start with your opinion? What would you do? What would you do? And how would you have avoided this in the first place? As we know, patient counselling is um, extremely important. And if the patient uh, had perhaps done a uh, monovision test with a contact lens prior to that and seen if there was a you know, time for neuroadaptation, that would have been uh, quite helpful as a preoperative uh, plan as well as the, the counselling. And uh, now that we're in this situation, what do you think you'd do? I know I'm putting you on the spot here. I should have given you this earlier, but what would you do? Um, I think that the question really is how long has it been since the patient has had the procedure? Because if it's been a couple of weeks, um, I would tend to say wait um, and, and see, although not every patient would be happy with that answer and might go ahead to uh, Dr. Carp, Mr. Carp and uh, ask for their advice instead. But, uh, um, you know, that would be my first instinct. But if they've been in that position for much longer, um, then I'd be thinking about, you know, laser enhancement uh, of their situation to perhaps um, uh, change it, you know, using whether you're, you're going to use asphericity or spherical aberration, whatever it is uh, within your laser correction uh, to make those changes. Thanks very much. Now, Glenn, would you have done anything differently? Do you actually do standard monovision LASIK anymore or have you uh, left that realm and gone fully into Presbyond? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, we've been performing Presbyond for the last 16 years. Uh, we don't do monovision anymore. We don't um, we don't prescribe to monovision. I think that the, the key problem with monovision is that it's only well tolerated by 60% of people. Uh, and that leaves a large percentage of people feeling uh, a little off balance. Uh, one of the interesting points you made about this particular patient was that it was a high myope. Uh, moderate to high myope. So the truth is, is that when we treat moderate to high myopia, the amount of spherical aberration we do induce just from the treatment, even using an, an aspheric uh, profile, modern aspheric profile, should leave the patient with some 
reasonable amount of, of spheric aberration for increased depth of field. So you're probably not even doing monovision, you're doing a, a variant of, of, of presbyond. It's just not very well controlled. And remember, inducing spherical aberration to anywhere between 0.3 and 0.6 microns, 0.5 is the optimal, uh, will leave patients with increased depth of field at the level of their cornea. In this patient though, the, the, the key, the, the reason the patient's probably unhappy is because the amount of residual my, myopia presence is a little bit too much for a 51 year old. So minus two wouldn't be an optimal target uh, to aim for. We would aim for uh, a target of about minus one and a half and azimetropia between the two eyes. So essentially what we're saying is that you, you, you leave spherical aberration in the system at a level which gives depth of, depth of field, but not at a level which is toxic, which reduces contrast and gives night vision problems. But at the same time, because we can't increase the amount of zoom sufficiently uh, without leaving them toxic, we have to borrow from a little bit of microanisometropia. And minus two between the two eyes, especially for a, a 51 year old, it's just, just too much. So the answer is what you would do for the patient is you would simulate for them through a ferropter or a contact lens, because they've got the spherical aberration in the cornea already, uh, reducing the amount of anisometropia and you titrate it down. If they become comfortable with a half adapter reduction, leaving them a one and a half difference between the eyes, then you could simply do a standard aspheric enhancement uh, just to move and shift the refraction to a more comfortable level. Uh, at the same time, if the 150 was still too much in a 51 year old, you could even consider reducing it to a minus one difference between the eyes because the spherical aberration will make it as if it's a, a minus one and a half when they're at minus one. With the increased depth of field. Ah, that's really interesting. With uh, just on a personal note, can you lift a flap and give a presbyond like treatment when someone's already had a treatment done before? Sure, you can. Uh, but the point being is that in most cases for enhancements, you don't need to reuse a presbyond profile. Generally speaking, the amount of spherical aberration present is going to be good. So it's really more of a refractive treatment, just using an aspheric profile. Um, just to shift the refraction. Uh, if they don't have enough spherical collaboration, you can obviously use a presbyon profile, sure. Oh, that's really interesting. Thank you. And Prof. Alio, would you do anything different in this scenario? How would you think about avoiding that? I, I agree with Radhika that the answer really would be a contact lens trial beforehand, but do you have any other methods before treatment that you think about with monovision? No, in this case, my, my point is that minus two, in my opinion, is that much aggressive near vision target, you know. Usually when I do a monovision, I leave, especially in people that have been previously myop, a minus 0.5 in the dominant and 1.5 in the non-dominant. In doing that, you get very good intermediate, very good, very acceptable near, and somehow that not optimal for far, but most usually are not unhappy with this because they, the far vision is usually a moderate to bad, you know. So the, with this target, usually the patients are happy. I agree totally with Dr. Karp about the use of a peripheral profiles that induce spheric aberration in a calculated way. And we use in these cases, definitely if the indication fits well with the patient, the Presbymax. So Presbymax from Swin is the one that we use and it's a biospheric profile and it's pupil dependent. So we, we look at the pupil, the pupil photopic should be 3.5 about or less. And with this, and this micro monovision with minus 0.5 in 
dominant minus 1.5 in the non-dominant. I believe me, I think that I never have an unhappy patient for intermediate. I might have an unhappy or relatively unhappy for near because some of these mice are accustomed to, to, to use varieties that are uh, near vision activities of high, uh, highly relevant uh, discrimination. And in these cases, to read very small characters, they will need glasses. And this should be openly discussed with the patient. I don't trust, believe me, and this, I know this is controversial, in contact lens trial, because contact lens trial is unreliable. You don't have the patient that much time in the office to guarantee neuroadaptation, and the daily life activities of the patient are not in, the, in your office at all. So the patient might feel good in your office and not happy at home, and conversely. So what I do is just a not normal trial, not, not to, 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 to be convinced myself about the effectiveness, but the patient to understand what is monovision, what means one vision is slightly better for near, while the other is slightly better for far. And with Presbymax, uh, which is a combination of a micro monovision in the hybrid form and, and the spherical resin change in periphery, the patients are definitely better than, than the, with the trial. So this is my point. In this case, for being practical, I would uh, make a trial with a, a plus 0.5 in the, in the emetropic eye, which is the dominant. I would make a, a, a minus 1.5 correction in the non-dominant. I would test the patient, listen, uh, be for a while, use your laptop, let me know if you feel better. Probably the patient will be better. And then you need to, to treat both eyes, inducing that this is small myopia in the dominant and decrease the, 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 the minus two, which is too much than dominant. This is a, a, a piece of cake. And if the patient is happy, that's it, you know, and this is the approach in this very case. Yeah. That's really interesting. Thank you. I, I usually do a contact lens trial for about a week. I didn't do it just in the office. So I get around that problem that way, but it is time consuming and I probably lose some patients that way. The, uh, the one other question I'd like to ask you, Prof, would be, uh, do you always aim the dominant eye minus 0.5 or is that just in high myopes? High myopes, you know, because they, in, 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 in just a metropic, I leave a metropic, but uh, it's, it's, it's not my choice for a metropic monovision. Let me tell you that I use in hyperops and myopes, both, uh, from up to minus four, and to plus four. Beyond that, I preferred other methods, you know, because the monovision in these patients, especially in very high myopes, is tricky and the lack of contrast sensitivity, which is usually not that good in very high myopes, is not uh, optimal, you know, for monovision. Mm, I understand. Now, I don't want to give the impression that I have a lot of unhappy patients, but I have one more I'd like to ask you about. Uh, I have a patient that uh, was undergoing cataract surgery with plans for implantation of a trifocal IOL. Uh, they were very keen to be completely glasses independent, but it appears that during their surgery, they had a posterior capsule tear and they had a monofocal lens put in the sulcus. So very disappointed with their outcome. I have inherited them and I've been asked, what can I do for them to make them glasses independent? They really had their heart set on good distance, intermediate and near vision. So one eye is pseudophagic, the other eye is still phagic. Uh, Glenn, can I start with you this time? I, yeah, I, sure. I, I feel like your answer to this one again might be Presbyon, but I would be interested to know how you deal with this because as someone that doesn't really do multifocal corneas uh, or doesn't aim to, I feel as though I'm probably stuck with saying this eye is what it is and the other eye we might try for multifocality. So I'd really like to know what you'd do. So, I mean, certainly, yeah, we would still consider this patient an excellent candidate for Presbyon. Um, the fact that you've used a monofocal lens keeps them totally in the game for presbyon. 
Uh, in fact, the opposite is the case. You, you shouldn't perform a presbyon treatment in somebody who has had a previous multifocal lens placed inside the eye, because with the increased depth of field, it can bring out the multiple peaks of focal points within the lens, and it causes a lot more confusion and a lot more, a lot less absorption of the diffraction of the light that's coming in that shouldn't be hitting certain targets in the retina. So the fact that this patient's had a good quality monovision optic uh, placed inside the eye makes them an ideal candidate for presbyon. Uh, we would simulate a, a, a one and a half data um, anisometropia target. You've got to understand as well that just like we discussed with the contact lens trial, when you're doing a contact lens trial, you're simulating monovision, it's pure monovision. They don't get the depth of field, which they will get from the spherical aberration adjustment. So by just measuring the whole eye spherical aberration after the IOL has been placed inside the eye, the algorithm will very comfortably shift the spherical aberration. It'll increase it accordingly or decrease it if necessary uh, to leave them with the optimal amount of, of depth of field. And this will be at the level of the cornea. And just to finish off, it's the same approach we use for our current patients when we do presbyon in the future when they develop cataracts. We simply place in a good quality monofocal IOL. And again, if we need to shift the spherical aberration, we can do that with spherical aberration that comes with the lens. So we can choose our lens accordingly uh, to move the spherical aberration a little bit if it's required. Yeah. I love how uh, calm and confident you are of these problems. It, it makes me feel a lot better because uh, you've obviously seen this before and have dealt with it and confident in the outcomes. So that's really nice. Radhika, would you do anything differently for this patient? So um, I think one thing I'd like to know uh, at this point in time about the patient would be, is this their dominant or non-dominant eye? Um, I think that that's where we should begin. Uh, and then we want to know, um, does the patient want to do anything with that eye? You know, do they want further surgery on that eye or have they come to you actually to go away from that other surgeon and, and, and go for something in the other eye? Now, it's perfectly good to mix and match a um, multifocal IOL in, in the other eye with a monofocal IOL on this eye. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, brilliant surgeons, I mean, even including, say, Damon Gastonelli, you know, when we came up with this at a table discussion was actually maybe I would do one monofocal C and yeah. then and then go for another try, you know, his yeah. own try. That's probably eye. more what I was thinking, to be honest. Yeah. But, but you know, at the, at the, at the same time, as, as Glenn mentioned, you know, we have a lot of um, options with multifocality within that cornea still. Um, now you mentioned Presbyon, we mentioned Presbymax, and, you know, don't forget, we've also got Presbylasic, you know, changing the um, corneal aspericity, um, uh, as I've done some work with um, Damon Gatinell on that. So we do have a lot of options. And I think we shouldn't forget that the patient has their own natural high order aberrations. And then also that the monofocal lens itself is not without its own high order aberrations. And then it would be really great now to plan you know, with all these options that we have, the perfect um, multifocality for that patient. Thank you. Uh, and Prof. Elio, we've got probably one vote in each camp so far. We've got the laser option, we've got our lens option. Which way would you go? Well, you know, it, it depends on the condition of the eye that suffered the complication because the eye, I understand, is emetropic, right? That's correct. Okay. And the other eye is with a cataract or, or has a dysfunctional lens probably, right? 
Okay. Yes. You know, with a dysfunctional lens, the problem is that you, you, are, you have not a good candidate for corneal surgery, but rather for lens surgery. So the indication was appropriate. And you have two options. One is what Glenn mentioned, just to, to, to decide corneal surgery, having in the other eye, just the induction of a slight uh, monovision, for instance, 1.5 negative with, a, with the use of a negative aspherity lens, and then to target uh, with press beyond to refine the vision in, the, in, in both eyes with some extraspheric aberration according to the final total aberration. This is one approach that it follows the corneal indication, but my approach would be uh, different. You know, I, I would finish with the eye that you suffered a complication and I would use a sulcus flex lens. Sulcus flex uh, lens. So I would explain the lens uh, because obviously when you have the complication, you don't have a, a, a plan to operate the room. You have just the, the sulcus lens that things are, can, can, is always calculated and you can use it, but you don't have this possibility of a plan B with a sulcus multifocal lens. In my hands, the sulcus flex has worked properly. So this plan, to explain this lens using the incision in the positive meridian in case that you have any astigmatism can uh, open the field of having again the patient recover from multifocality. And if successful, that should be successful, if no macular edema happens, obviously, then the second eye will be for a multifocal lens of the same type. That means the, the, the Reiner, which is a refractive lens, the, the, the sucus flex, is a very good lens. Um, um, the cases that have like this have been always successful, you know? And believe me, I think that this is the best option because corneal surgery would mean for this patient to have intraocular surgery in the side and on top of that to have press beyond, which is a duplication in expenses, double time. And finally, the, the idea was to create multifocality with the lens. So the I kind of different because you know monoplane a patient that has been already uh, the subject of an indication and explanation of multifocal lens is not that psychologically successful many times. The patients are simply waiting for a better option, you know? Yeah, I, I love that for anyone listening, we've got three world experts in refractive surgery and we've given them three completely different options. So uh, it just shows you that there are many ways to skin a cat and there's no absolutely correct answer, but thank you all very much. Uh, I'll take that on board and I'll, I'll have a good think before I talk to this patient again. Now, I'd also like to talk to you all about patient counseling. We're doing more and more with the lights that we have available. We're using multifocal lenses. We're playing with spherical aberration. And it seems as though any patient that walks in the door, we can pretty much offer them great vision and whatever they want. But I often tell patients that no matter what we do, there's probably some kind of trade-off. You can't really have the vision you had when you were a teenager. And the question really is, how do you, how do you establish healthy expectations with your patients? Radhika, do you have any tips for not over-promising? Yeah, sure. So um, actually, you know, I did a huge review with uh, Damien in ophthalmology on multifocal IOLs um, just at the end of last year. And just from working on that piece of, you know, uh, that, that project really, it over six months, I really gained a lot of insight into what's happening across, across the globe. Um, I think what definitely for patients, it's all about, you know, underselling and, uh, you know, overachieving or overperforming. And uh, there's two ways to look at it. One thing is that I created a lot of tables um, and figures in that paper showing, you know, what's the preoperative um, kind of procedure for these patients. Certain tips and tricks that might have been missed in that long paper would be things like if a patient has a dense amblyopia, 
or um, has any sort of strabismus that they must go and see an orthoptist before, um, or you know things like um, what is their baseline high order aberration. And I do find that every paper pretty much said that if a patient has a cataract already there, they already have some starbursts, they already have some halos that they've neuroadapted to, they're more likely to be happy with their lens surgery with a multifocal than a patient who's having a clear lens extraction. Um, if you do go ahead and all, you know, offer a clear lens extraction, you better um, understand the patient's requirements to a very high degree. I know that means a little bit more chair time. Um, other ways going around that would be to use um, you know, products available on the market, which can actually collect that data. Um, uh, you know, like for example, Arthur Cummings with uh, Vivio or um, uh, I, I forget the, the, other, uh, the other lady's name, but she's uh, doing Simbiz um, as well. And uh, you know, it's, um, it's amazing what is now becoming available uh, for us to actually give patients an idea of what they might be able to expect. And, uh, and finally, I think what I would say is that there's a lot of discussion at the moment internationally about how to um, categorize lenses. Um, and it's not just the surgeons, it's the patients. And it's also, you know, um, uh, the FDA, uh, they all are struggling with this right now. So that's another very interesting part of, of that discussion with patients as well. Mm. And so Radhika, do you, keeping that in mind about the difference of coping with uh, people that have cataracts or clear lens, do you offer them different options or is it just that your counselling is a little bit more in depth and you'll feel them out a bit more? So personally, so I'm just starting out as a, as a junior consultant. So, you know, I'm at the, at the beginning of it, but, you know, I think that the in-depth information that I have learned from a, doing these papers and work and also actually sitting in, um, you know, NHS um, or National Health Service uh, clinics where we see patients who are unhappy and have been referred to, you know, uh, my, my colleague, Professor um, Gartry, for example, he gets a lot of unhappy patients and he's obviously an expert in, in laser surgery and correction um, and also multifocal IOLs. And uh, it's amazing to see these patients in clinic come in and actually a lot of their problem is... Um, uh, un not having understood preoperatively what they were going to get, what they're signing up for. Um, so I don't offer clear lens extraction as yet, but um, definitely what I would say is that I personally, as I take this um, on, uh, would would prefer to almost have a cutoff point for and, and have a patient only with cataracts initially um, uh, and performing lens uh, extraction and multifocal lenses for them. I think as you get more confident with your own data, you can then start to consider clear lens extraction and, and things like that. Um, and, and almost having, even if a patient has a cataract, almost having a cutoff for a you know, scatter index to say, actually, I don't want to perform this until you are at this level. Um, and of course, you know, having that conversation with the patient and coming to a decision together. Yeah, that's really good advice for anyone starting off because, you know, using multifocal lenses can be a bit daunting. Um, Prof. Alio, do you offer all possibilities to all patients or do you hold some things back when you're counselling patients about their cataract options? You know, I think that the, the indication should be customised to many factors. One is the age of the patient, the second, the dedication of the patient, uh, third, the hobbies, and finally, the personality. You know, you have to, to take all these a cocktail of uh, together, you know, in order to bring 
what is adequate for the patient. I try to identify in my discussion with the patient all these uh, issues, the personality, how tolerant the patient can be to, to well, things that could happen, uh, in, including the adaptation. How is the patient in terms of uh, dedications? Or from labor, labor dedication usually today involves a lot of computers. And finally, which are the, the real uh, uh, well needs of the patient according to age. I usually indicate cornea surgery when I have the patient below the age of 55, especially mice, and everything which is beyond 55, I prefer to use intraocular lens surgery. So with this in mind, uh, I have two categories and a lot of flexibility because it doesn't mean that in a patient that has a plus seven, I don't indicate refractive exchange and the age of 45, you know, this is number one. Two is the type of, of procedure. Type of procedure means either you are going to, to get um, a, a multifocal cornea, which is a, a kind of tricky and the patient should understand what is going to be the behavior, what is going to be the long-term evolution because this is not going to be forever. And what is what you can guarantee for the patient. And we, we need from that moment to, to state clearly that we're not God, we're, we're making estimations based on experience and data. Very important to have data. And I expose my patients to my data because this is relevant. They know that they, some patients can be not happy because the outcome could be not sufficient. And then this can exist, even that is not that frequent if you do things properly and usually the patient properly as well. And about lenses, I use a variety of lenses. I don't, I'm not attached to only one lens. Uh, some lenses are very good for near and just adequate for far, while others are much better for far and, and less good for near. Some lenses are bad for far and for near. I'm very, very disappointed by the EDOP lenses, most of them, not all, but the EDOP lenses are not the, 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 the beauty that has been formally inspected, you know. Even the new generations are totally different. And uh, I, I try to identify the need of the patient, the style of life, the, the, the personality, etc., in order to, to, to mix the, 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 this in a way that I made the indication that is adequate. I have to tell you that we have all of us on, on, on happy basis, but we have two categories, those that are disappointed and those that are unhappy and aggressive, you know. They were because of the first. If the patient is disappointed is because we have not informed the patient properly and we have not dedicated the time to the patient in an effective way. When the second are usually complications, um, uh, 40 phenomena that should be avoided, uh, neuroadaptation happens to be tricky, you know, uh, when neuroadaptation failures happen. And, uh, you know, I, I found that a way to treat the unhappy patient because of neuroadaptation problems by exchange by another multifocal. This is coming to for publication now, but it's interesting to know that if you have a diffractive unhappy patient, you can explain and substitute by a refractive lens, multifocal, and the patient can become happy. And so that means that we don't, we don't understand completely what is going to be the outcome, but in most of the cases it's predictable. Definitely the indication, the chair time, the, the adequate information that you have, and to know your data, and what is the lens that you want to implant. What is the offer that you know that you can really offer to the patient is uh, top uh, quality information that you have to use for the purpose of success, which is finally the success of the patient. Mm, that's really good. So yeah, it's a combination of you having to be a bit of a psychologist, but also showing them your evidence and your results. Yeah, and this in 10 minutes, uh, Ben, this is... Yeah. Okay, so you <laughs> have to be very effective. You have 10 minutes for that. Uh, yeah, that's, that's fast. Should understand you. That's I right. can't do it that fast. Uh, <laughs> now, Glenn, you've got the, the wonderful setup of doing mainly concentrating on laser surgery. Um, 
Now, do you still have long appointments? Just, you know, you've got fewer options to discuss perhaps, but I imagine that you still take a lot of time to discuss with the patient the expectations. Uh, do you approach it any differently? Um, first of all, I mean, I have all the options available to me. In, in our practice, we perform, um, you know, cataract surgery. We, can, we have the option of using any lens we, we, we choose. We don't really use multifocal lenses. It's not our uh, um, preferred uh, methodology of, of correcting uh, even cataract surgery. Um, and we have ICLs, we have laser technology as well. I think, I think for us, the, the, the big concept that we're trying to approach our patients uh, from is, is, is in terms of both uh, amount of vision, how far they can read down the chart and the range, distance and near, as well as the quality of the vision. So for us, any patient, regardless of age, if they have good quality of vision, they've got good contrast, their OSI is in the normal range on the HD analyzer, uh, we perform corneal laser correction and we use presbyon. Uh, we explain to the patients that, yeah, these, these treatments do need enhancements as the years go by. And in the future, when you do develop a visually significant quality of vision cataracts, then of course you can have that replaced with a, simply with a monofocal lens. It can be done at any uh, cataract surgeon uh, or, or, or through us as well. Um, and I think the point as well is, is, is also about the risk side of things. Uh, we know that the risks of intraocular surgery are different to corneal laser surgery as well. So even from my own perspective, um, the, the magical age group of the 45 to 65 year old patient, uh, where you can perform a corneal treatment and you may end up doing two enhancements over that 20 year period to keep them in functional vision, but also with good quality of vision. There's no multifocality that needs to be induced, um, it is worth its weight in gold. Um, certainly for the older patients who are less mobile, and I'm now talking, you know, a bit older, in their 70s and 80s, um, we have no issue with using multifocal lenses. Uh, you probably find these people aren't driving as much at night. They, they have a, a, a bit more tolerance to, to their overall vision based on the amount of activity that they do. But certainly taking a, a younger pa a patient who's an avid golfer, for example, and they want to read the scorecard, they want to address the ball when they tee off and see where it goes in the distance, uh, usually with me, it's off to one side. Um, <laughs> that's not from my vision. Um, you know, uh, keeping the quality of vision along with giving them the range of vision is, is, is our big mandate. Now, Profilio, you mentioned about uh, neuroadaptation. And often after we give someone a new vision experience, such as trifocality. Uh, you're waiting for them to neuroadapt. You're, you're seeing them in the clinic and you're trying to be positive. For me, I ask all of my staff to push the plus, not in terms of a refractive outcome, but in terms of everything. I want them to be a positive experience. I want to emphasize they're not wearing their glasses. I don't want to focus on the downsides like the halos or the glare. I want to sort of push the positives. Do you, how do you help them through that neuroadaptation stage? You know, neuroadaptation is a syndrome that is characterized by the feeling of poor quality of vision with associated, with the association of usually dysphotopsias and a, a deep unsatisfaction in terms of daily life activities. It might include a decrease in vascular vision for far and near. So neuroadaptation is, is really something that makes your vision to be bad, you know, and this is something that we, we explore 
with difficulty, but the patient refers to us. Uh, the first reason for neuroadaptation failure is refraction. If you have a residual astigmatism or you have residual amyotropia, you have to prescribe glasses to the patient to wait uh, for a couple of weeks or one month to know if the patient is happy with the glasses, not happy with wearing glasses, obviously, but, with, but, the, neuro, but, but the symptoms disappear is because you have a, refracture, a, a problem with the refraction and then coronary refractive story should follow. And if, even with that, the patients are unhappy because you are truly dealing with a neuroadaptation problem. They, beyond the, the six months, and believe me, at this very moment, beyond the third month, I, I prefer to IOL exchange based on my own results. So it's been a, a really interesting thing to, to see how to change the, 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 the optical profile of the lens, be multifocal, really you get in a different neuroadaptation process. This was suspected by some MRI studies that demonstrate that different areas of the brain are activated by different, different type of, of multifocality. But it's true, in a real, real basis, the first case I had was the wife of a friend, obviously a recommended uh, friend, you know, that had a neuroadaptation with a lens, a multifocal refractive. After three years being unhappy, I, I finally decided to try to substitute and to avoid the, the problems of uh, having a, a, mono, a monofocal lens. Obviously, the patient was a, the, the, the wife of a friend, so very tricky case. And to, the, I was lucky because I always use a CTR, casual attention ring, in my multifocal patients, listen to everyone, everyone. You know? The first reason is because improved centration. But the second, if you have this uh, not that frequent case in which you have to substitute the lens, then you have a good chance, even one, two, or even three years like this case uh, with the multifocality. I, I did the, this, this diffractive, refractive lens multifocal change by a diffractive, and this was the first case in which I had the evidence that this exchange happened to be work. You know, the patient was happy. I was truly happy because I, I had confidence with her. And finally, this was the first case. Following this, I have done a, a kind of 30 cases. Uh, success rate is 82% is the, in the paper where for publication. Definitely, we, we have to think that we have to face neuroadaptation in a positive way. First, to, to give a refractive solution in case that this is a, the, the, the factor that influences neuroadaptation. Second, if necessary, to decide a laser change, if possible, before the, 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 the six months period that usually is left for the purpose, because at six months you really have a fibrotic absorber. Most of the surgeons don't use CTR, and you are going to be in trouble expanding a lens with six months or more. I use CTR, and, I, and even with CTR, I try not to be more than six months, and even at the third month, if the patient doesn't show a trend to be, to be better, you are going to have an unsatisfied patient, and then better to change that. Thanks very much. Uh, that's tough operating on a friend's, oh, family of friends. That's, that's tough. That's awful. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Uh, I <laughs> Glenn, you had something to mention? Yeah, so I mean, I just I agree totally with Prof. Um, the the, I mean, even from a presbyon perspective, just for example, a monovision perspective, those that side of the equation where you're not having to deal with the dysphotopsia of the ring mm. segments and the different multifocal uh, 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 foci, um, that that any residual refractive error uh, is sometimes the main instigator for for the for the um, discomfort in the in the vision. Uh, the asthenopia symptoms. And, um, you know, certainly from what we find is that um, just titrating a patient in the early post-op period, minimizing the amount of anisometropia, for example, uh, or reducing any sill, in particular, any sill that's oblique. Uh, you, when you find you have with the rule or against the rule sill, it tends to be a bit more forgiving, but oblique sill really 
it, 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 it plays havoc with uh, both um, increased depth of field, spherical aberration profiles, as well as uh, multifocal profiles. Um, and, and the point is, is that you can tide the patients over with, with uh, contact lenses, with glasses. Uh, we tend to wait much longer. We, we don't tend to enhance within the first six months. Um, also because the epithelium is still remodeling, certainly for the first three months in a myo and six months for a hyperope. Uh, again, this is from a corneal procedure perspective. Mm. So we, we often see further change in patients becoming less symptomatic, both from the perspective that they're drifting into their true target, they're regressing into their true target from the initial overcorrection, and secondly, because they're adapting, their brains are adapting. Um, but we give them the helping hand, the pair of crutches when you've had your knee up, your pair of crutches from the eye point of view is your interim glasses. And we encourage them to use them. We'll say, use them for driving at night where you're finding the vision a bit difficult. And most patients will come back to us at six months and say to us, yeah, I, I no longer need the glasses. They've fallen away. And for those few people that have finally stabilized and a little bit off target, and of course, an enhancement will push them onto the target. And that's confirmed beforehand with the simulation. Oh, that's a really good tip. I, I always try and stay away from glasses because, you know, I, I feel as though I've, I've promised them that they're going to be glasses free. I think a lot of the statistics about glasses independence are, are probably a little bit exaggerated. I, I still feel like even my trifocal patients are probably wearing some glasses at night when they're reading. Uh, yes, agreed. I think most patients' frustration comes from the fact that they aren't able to they can't do as much as they were doing before because of the re reduction in vision in those certain areas. So by giving them those interim glasses, it keeps them productive. Yeah, it's not the ideal situation for them yet, but they'll get there in the end once we're finally able to enhance or exchange lenses, etc. It just ties them over and keeps them going. Oh, that's a really good tip to keep a happy patient on the go because that's the hardest part. Radhika, you had something to comment on this one? Yes, um, I remember the name of the lady, Susan Marcos. <laughs> oh, good. And that's with the, uh, similar to the Vivior type assessor? Of course, Invis, yeah. So um, the other thing to, to mention is that um, you're absolutely right. There's not enough data out there for how much spe spectacle independence or dependence there is. Um, when I was collating the data for all lenses out there on the market in 2020, we really struggled. Um, and who knows what, you know, they were, they were commenting this on the data, but does that mean spectacle independence within 24 hours, within six months? This was not, you know, uh, mentioned. Also talk about dysphotopsia. Is it a photic phenomenon or is it actually a dysphotopsia? And when we say dysphotopsia, are we meaning something that the patient is bothered by or just something that is there but not bothering the patient in their visual activities? I think that's also something to kind of, um, drill down on um, uh, as we kind of refine our um, chat to the patient uh, and also um, between, uh, between ourselves. Mm. I think uh, one thing I've discussed with your co-investigator Damien before is that with trifocal lenses I've had my most unhappy patients that have come out minus 0.5 and I think wow a monofocal patient they would love that. Uh, Trifocal, they hate it. We seem to, the happiest people seem to come out plus 0.5. And I still don't really understand why that is, to be perfectly honest. If anyone on the panel would like to say why, I'd be open to it. But uh, I've, I still haven't worked that one out. Uh, um, the other thing I'd like to ask about to do with pa patient counselling, which is probably the most important thing with all of you doing 
slightly unusual things that a standard cataract or refractive surgeon would maybe be uncomfortable with is that we all aim for perfection. We're all aiming to get someone exactly what they want. And sometimes patients are unhappy. How do you approach the idea before your surgeries about counseling about the likelihood of IOL exchange, uh, laser enhancement, rotation of toric lenses? Do you consent for all of that for every surgery? Radhika, maybe I'll start with you. If you're seeing someone in the hospital and you're thinking, oh, you know, I might be trying something a little bit different here. We might be giving this person monovision or maybe trialing a different lens. Do you, how in-depth do you go with your discussion about how you might fix problems if they occur? Um, I think it's extremely important one way or another to make sure that the patient not just signs a document, but really understands. I think when you're putting a toric in a patient, for example, I always clearly state that, you know, a percentage of patients will require to um, e either they'll be fine because it's, you know, the movement of the axis is within, you know, five or 10 degrees and it won't really bother you too much. Um, but you do have to mention that. And even within my NHS clinics, I, I still, even if I'm not offering the multifocal lens in the clinic, I always, always state mini monovision or monovision or a multifocal. Then I say, you, you, you know, you could be offered this outside of the NHS and it's something that you should consider, but actually in your case, with your background of um, X, Y, Z retinal problems, it's probably not a good idea. You know, so it's, um, it, it's amazing because what you will see is that the odd patient will, and it'll just take one or two patients in your lifetime to come back and say, yes. you gave me this and I did not know about multifocals or I did not know that I could have my astigmatism corrected. I think you have to have those conversations about clearing their astigmatism, giving them the multifocality range that they want. Um, and also even with touristy, uh, making sure that they understand uh, what the, the pros and cons of doing that are. Uh, and also um, always, always doing a um, pentacam or an anti-segment OCT to look at, you know, for example, um, the, the epithelium for early signs, um, you know, changes in remodeling that could signify, you know, form frust or, uh, or, or knowing if there is any sort of, you know, uh, baseline ectasia or, or other reasons, you know, not everything that blurs uh, is an aberration. Mm, that's a really good point. And this is maybe a slightly loaded question, but... Uh, sometimes I get approached by new lens manufacturers uh, who maybe make something that is a monofocal plus, you know, something a little bit different. And they'll say, look, you don't even have to tell the patient you're putting it in, you know, it, there's no different. Uh, you don't have to uh, tell them because it's very unlikely to have a problem, that sort of thing. I feel like, especially in those situations, you want to let a patient know, uh, do you, if you're using a toric lens, you'll talk about rotation. If you're using anything anything more than a monofocal you discuss all of the side effects yeah absolutely i think that's that's key you know and you know you, you know from looking at a patient sometimes they come loaded with questions they've read your paper they've read everything you know and then they come to you or they'll come not knowing anything and, and not necessarily wanting to engage in all of that conversation, but you have to go past it. Even if it's a fly past, you have to go past those, those, uh, those bits of information. Uh, for sure. And Glenn, when you're offering uh, something a little bit different to a standard LASIK, like a Presbyon type treatment, do you, do you mention that they may not like this? Do you mention that you might be changing the plan on the fly or do you ever change the plan and make this their non-dominant eye or, you know, make changes as you go. Is that something you consent for? 
Well, I mean, I, firstly, I think, I mean, the, the terminology informed consent says it all. You know, the patient needs to know as much as they need to know. Um, if, if you're, if you're going to get a, 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 take a flight to New York from London, you don't have to know how to fly the plane. You don't have to know how to do the surgery, but you need to know how to be a good passenger and need to know what to expect from the journey. So I think, um, yeah, I mean, we do extensive counseling. Patients, as part of their workup by our optometrist, first of all, will have a, a half an hour discussion in regards to all the potential risks, complications, side effects, but also to the expectation as to how they are expected to adapt after blended vision, for example. Uh, this is followed up with a bunch of paperwork, which they get to take home, they can read through and they can reflect back on that in the future. And then, of course, the surgeon reiterates that on a second day, a second visit, uh, in a more of a summary version, again, highlighting the adaptation process that patients will go through. Uh, from a presbyon point of view, it's not a, a magic treatment. 76% um, of patients will be fully adapted at three months. So that leaves about 25% still noticing the difference in their eyes in certain lighting conditions. They may be coping very well. They may not be having to wear interim glasses to reduce the anisometropia, but they, they're able to function, but it's not 100% comfortable at, at that point. By a year, that increases with neural adaptation and the eyes drifting further into target to around about 95, 96% across our myopic, emetropic and hyperopic uh, patient groups. So, the, but the patient has to understand and buy into that journey. It, the long-term vision benefit that they're gonna get for many years, because once you've adapted, you've adapted. You can increase the anisometropia later on if you need to, as they get older, they're adapted. Um, so it's really just making sure they understand that it is a journey, it's a healing and process. And this is very important when you're treating members of the same family or good friends. You treat yes. the two people on the same day, husband and wife, and uh, if one's a hyperope, they're going to have great reading on day one, but a bit fuzzy in the distance because of the intended initial overcorrection, which will regress. And the myope is going to have great distance and a little bit tricky on the reading. They can function, but it's not comfortable yet. They'll both meet in the middle when they get to that three-month period when their eyes are fully settled in. So, yes, making sure their expectations over the initial healing period is vital. Yeah. Thanks. And, um, Prof. Alio, I'd like to ask you something slightly different, and that is, you know, you do a lot of uh, laser correction, but also you use a wide variety of IOLs. If you do have uh, a problem after surgery, you know, maybe a small refractive error. Do you have a preference for going back into the eye or would you prefer to do something on the cornea if both options are viable? You know, that depends Ben, a lot on the magnitude of the problem. You know, if you have a refractive surprise with a plus three, definitely you, it's better to go to the lens and to make a piggyback. I would do in these cases piggyback. You have a small astigmatism or moderate astigmatism, for instance, one diopter that you have induced because of the surgery or unlucky case, or you have some residual ametropia, the best option is LASIK, always, you know. We made a study, and it was published uh, five years ago, in which we compared the touch-ups with a piggyback with, LASIK, with IOL exchange and with LASIK. It definitely was far, was far better to use corner surgery because you have much more uh, precision. You have less chance to induce residual astigmatism. And finally, it's, it's less aggressive, so you should have less complications. My preference is PRK. Let me tell you that this small difference in these people that are uh, not that young, 
is PRK, usually PRK, which is not that painful in these cases. And the minute you run out from the risk of the, the, the dry eye, which is far less in PRK, and everything that is related to the flap problem. So I, I prefer definitely PRK. I told it is signing the informed consent and is offered as a free uh, alternative in case that we have residual amyotrophy. So basically, know that this can happen. And it happens, which means about in this very moment, about 3% of our patients multifocals require a, a, a touch-up with corneal surgery. They know that it's going to happen and they know that it's going to be by PRK because it's our experience and it's the best option for them. Having said that, it's not optimal, you know, because PRK needs uh, more than one month of recovery, three months because epithelial recovery is suboptimal, but it's cost-effective and the patients are already alerted. I prefer the, the run less risk of ocular surface problems and flood-related complications and to have a slightly delayed uh, recovery because most of these cases are not a big deal. They are not high ametropias and then the recovery of the epithelium, usually one month, you are able to, to, to end the process and to discharge the patient. Yeah, I agree with you. I do a lot of transepithelial PRK. I think it's not as painful as it used to be. And I also agree that you know our formulas are so good. We're not having such big errors anymore. They're often small things to correct. Well, Thanks everyone very much. Managing unhappy patients is an unfortunate part of our job. Fortunately, however, there are many strategies and best practices in patient counseling that can help us to recover and turn a negative situation for patients into a positive one. On behalf of Jorge Alio, Glenn Karp, Radhika Rampart, and myself, Ben Lahud, I want to thank you all for joining us today. We all hope you learned something useful that you can implement the next time you're faced with an unhappy patient. Thank you very much. Talk to you again soon.